Come Holy Spirit, fill our minds, fill my lips, and may my words be yours. Uh, bend our wills to your own. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you, Lord Jesus, as we walk into this season of Lent, where we learn what the secret to a transformed life truly is. For your honor and glory, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd love to know what you're thinking. Uh, you know, you got up this morning, you had a nice leisurely breakfast. It is the 11 o'clock service after all. You know, gentlemen, we shaved. We're looking good. You know, ladies, you do what you do. You know, and you walk in here, and you might have heard me say what this series was about last week, but it really didn't click. But you walked in here, and you opened up the bulletin and say, repentance. Yay! Right? Yeah, not quite. I know, because there's all kinds of feelings around that word. What does it mean? But yet, for 500 years, we Anglicans in the Ash Wednesday service, we talk about this being a season of repentance. Because what our hope is over the next five weeks is to take five weeks and clear the fog and see what repentance truly is for each and every one of us as we walk with Christ together here at Christ Church. Because when people hear that word, typically there's two extremes that happen, even among people who would call themselves Christians. The first extreme is people hear repentance and they think of just beating yourself up. Guys, you thought to yourself, oh, great, Blanche, she's going to talk for five weeks about beating ourselves up. Right? Some of you probably thought that. And if that's you, i got a question for you. And that question is this. As professing Christians trusting that Jesus mean what he says, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus said, just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Why would Jesus say that? If it's about beating yourself up, why would the angels be rejoicing over you beating yourself up? I mean, if there are spiritual beings that rejoice over misery, they're not angels. Okay? So when Jesus says there'll be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, he's not talking about beating yourself up. It's a joyful activity, this repentance. So when we're called in the season of Lent to repent, it's a season of joy. As a matter of fact, we even sing joyful songs during Lent. I know some of you grew up in Anglican traditions where Father Snurdly told you, you can't be joyful. <laughs> Father Snurdly was wrong. All right? You can be joyful. It's penitential. It's self-examination. But it's great joy because our focus is on what Jesus has done for us. All right? And so, stop thinking misery and start thinking joy for you beating up Christian-type repentant people. Then there's a second group. Some of you have come to Christ Church from an evangelical background where you walked forward at a crusade. 
you gave your life to Christ at a Young Life camp. You went to some camp of a denomination long time ago. And you were taught the ABCs. Admit, believe, and commit your life to Christ. And I call this group. Maybe you got confirmed at 10. You know? 11, 12, 13, 14. I've been there and I've done that. I call this the check the box crowd. Boom. Been there, done that. Wipe my hands. I'm good. All right? Well, if that's you, I would ask you, when you made your commitment to Christ, how long was that commitment to Christ for? If you came to believe that Jesus truly is God in human flesh and died upon the cross for you, and you believe that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how long was that belief for? If you came to the point, because when you say the ABCs, the A stands for admit, what admitting is, admitting you're a sinner, that's repentance. How long is this repentance for? My check-the-box crowd. You see... What we're talking about here is a lifetime of repentance. And I think this is what the Reformation era recaptured so well from the early church, is that there's an idea of constantly repenting, confessing, absolving. All right? You know, it's interesting that the very first of the 95 theses that Luther nailed to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, it says these words, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ called us to repent, he intended that the whole life of his believers to be one of repentance. So, it's a lifetime activity. And for you beating yourself up, folks, my friends, is joyful. And for you check off the box, folks, it's for a lifetime. And it's a lifetime of joy. John Calvin said this of the check the box crowd of his day. They limit to a paltry few days of the year that repentance for a Christian person should last for a lifetime. So for you check the box crowd... It's for a lifetime, for you beating yourself up crowd. It's joyful. Can we just admit that? There's a joyful, lifelong process to begin over these next five weeks. And I've got a definition that we're going to operate from that's going to be our template going forward for the next five weeks. I had the privilege while I was in seminary at Trinity to spend time with, and sit under the teaching of Dr. J.I. Packer. He is 96 years old and still teaches adult Sunday school at St. John's Shaughnessy. If you look at him, it looks like a strong wind would blow him over. But he's still so sharp. He he had macular degeneration a few years ago, and he he wrote a goodbye letter to the church. He said, I won't be able to see in a few months. Pray for me. And so the church prayed for him, and guess what? His eyesight never left. The doctors can't explain it. Well, he keeps writing. He keeps teaching. And we're going to use his definition of repentance because I think it's very helpful for each and every one of us. Dr. Packer 
says that repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. Right? Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. So we're going to use that definition. And as we do so, our knowledge will grow and our faith will enlarge and we can thus for be transformed people to as much as we know of our sin. In other words, as we grow in our knowledge of sin, then we recognize it. And what we recognize this year, next year, we might recognize a little more. It enlarges, and our love of God enlarges, because God doesn't abandon us as our view of our own sin enlarges. You know, you might say to yourself, I don't know if I'm making any progress in this Christian life. I see my sin now more than ever. Well, praise God. Because you can take that to the Lord. The Lord's working on you, and that's a reason to be thankful. It's a sign of your growth in the Lord itself by just recognizing for what it is. And that the Holy Spirit can shine into our hearts as we see our sin and then turn from it. So we see as much of our sin to as much we know of ourselves. And it's a, we're, we're saved by God's grace, but we're also sanctified. In other words, we're set apart for his purposes by grace too. It's not saved by grace and sanctified by his works. I was in an email conversation with a person this week from Christ Church who really believes that we're sanctified by his works, and he's miserable. Scripture doesn't say that. You're saved by grace, you're sanctified by grace. And when you start to look at yourself, you know, I, I walked into Truro Church at, at 15 years of age, and I heard preaching like I've never heard before, and I was hooked. So I had to go to church with my dad, you know, and as I came to confirmation, I gave my life to Christ at 15, 16 years of age. A year later in the fall, he gave another call-to-decision type of sermon using John Wesley's prayer of decision, which I have used at times when I do evangelistic sermons. And guess what? I realized more of myself, which I hadn't submitted unto the Lord, so therefore, I gave my life to Christ again. Well, my junior year came along, and uh, all of a sudden, he said another call to decision, and I saw more of myself that I hadn't submitted, so I gave my life to Christ again, and so on and so forth. And then at 19, if you've heard my testimony, I will tell you that I received Christ at 19 years of age, sitting next to Kim Cordova on the balcony at Truro Church, as he preached on Ephesians 2, verse 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is a gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one can boast. Was God absent at 15? No. God was speaking to me, and I was realizing more and more and more as I availed myself to his mercy and grace. But it was at 19 it took off for me. It just clicked. And so God continues to reveal our, himself to us, and we discover that there's undealt with stuff in our lives that we never knew was there in the first place, and we bring that under, his, under submission to him. Because he is Lord of our lives, he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Right? Paul says we're to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. So 
When we talk about knowing as much, of our, much as ourselves, it's bringing all of our lives into submission under the sovereign lordship of Christ. Giving as much as I know of myself. That sounds like a good Lenten discipline, doesn't it? And finally, to as much as I know of God. Because as your knowledge of God enlarges, there's a deeper self-giving of yourself to him that becomes more and more natural. It no longer feels weird. It does at first. You wake up the morning after you receive Christ and you go, what bill of goods have I just bought, right? And all of a sudden, a while later, it's not a bill of goods. It's reality. It's truth. And so God becomes bigger rather than this little I can handle God. God is the God of the universe. So we're going to use this definition as a template of the next five weeks. And so God willing, we'll joyfully grow in our walk with the Lord together and be transformed increasingly into his likeness. So those of you who are beating yourself up in your repentance, stop it. All right. It's a joyful thing. Yeah, it's self-examination. Yes, it's, it's true confession. But don't beat yourself up. It's joyful. Secondly, for you check-the-box people, we, we keep checking the box. We keep coming back. We keep self-examination. So what we're doing at Lent is a spiritual control-alt-delete. Boom. And reboot our walk with Christ. And I know there's some who are talking this repentance, and it, it brings forth a kind of a, a sense of sadness. You know, you're, you're defeated before you even begin. It's like going to a business interview and you discover you're up for a job against Bill Gates. You don't stand a chance. All right? And you might be thinking, I, I can't change. I, I believe it, but I can't change. It's, just, uh, it's, it's too late for me. It's been too long a time. This sin has taken way too deep of a root. There's no possibility. I would if I could, but I can't. Well, I've titled this series, Repentance, The Secret to a Transformed Life, not because it's secretive, because so few people actually grab it. And the fact that you are here this morning, ladies and gentlemen, the sovereign God of the universe brought you here. And you're here by no mistake that he wants you to know what it truly doesn't look like. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, because in the Bible it tells us of a man that sought repentance, and he never changed. It's the person of Esau. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 14, it's in the back of your bulletin for those of you who are visiting with us and you weren't able to bring your Bible. Verse 14 states, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Carol read for us Genesis 27, going back to the old story of Jacob and Esau. We haven't gone through this part in Genesis yet. We will do that in the future. 
But you, you remember the story, most of us. You know, you have Isaac and Rebecca have been married, and they have twin boys. Out comes Esau first. He's a hairy baby, and he's a man's man. He, he's the field and stream guy and loves to hunt and fish and go out. He loves it, and he's an absolute meathead. Okay, he's the type of kid who wears his IQ on his jersey. All right, where Jacob is the quiet, smart, good student, intellectual, likes to stay at home and watches the Food Network. All right, and Jacob is favored by Rebecca. This is not good parenting either, by the way, or Isaac and Rebecca. And so these two are, are at odds with one another. So, so Esau comes back in from the field, as the author of Hebrew writes, and says he is absolutely starving. And Jacob's just cooking some stew, and he says, you know, I'll, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. Because Esau's the firstborn, male, who will inherit everything, and it'll be portioned out among the siblings. And Esau foolishly says, what good is a birthright if I die of starvation? Okay, I'll give it to you. So he did, foolishly. And so, well, Jacob's name means schemer, and he was before God got hold of him. And Carol read for us the, the, the story where Esau came, went out to prepare a meal for his father so he would receive the blessing of the firstborn as the father dies. It's different than the birthright, but it's a special thing in the ancient world. And Jacob deceived Isaac, disguised himself all hairy, put skins on him and disguised himself, tried to hide his voice to Isaac. But Isaac couldn't tell the difference, and he blessed Jacob instead of Esau. And the text says that Esau wept bitterly and cried aloud for a blessing. And that's where the author of Hebrews takes over. And so we hear of the weeping of Esau, and in verse 17, it says, For you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? The NIV says that Esau could bring about no change of mind. The message renders this passage later. Esau regretted the impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late, tear or no tears. Well, does that mean that Esau could not bring about a, a chance to repent in Isaac's mind? Or did it mean he could bring about no chance to repent in his own? And the answer is both. Because Isaac couldn't, in that culture, take it back. And Esau never change when you look at his life. Ever, no transformation whatsoever. Oh, there was lots of sadness, lots of beating himself up, but there's no transformation. So why does this matter for us, no matter where we are in our walk with Christ this morning? You see, if you say to yourself, 
I can't change, or I won't change, who are you identifying with? Esau? See, transformation for someone like Esau is a secret path. You know, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you don't want to live there. You don't want to be like this. So the obvious question is, why couldn't Esau repent? And the author of Hebrew gives us two reasons. The first, in verse 16, it is said, see to it, that none of you is unholy like Esau. See, if Esau were living today, he would have been at not just one Ash Wednesday service, he would have been at several. He probably would have shown up at 7.30 in the morning and 7 o'clock at night at Bay Prez and stuck his head out and said, Father Bob, please impose me ashes. I repent. He was very religious. Oh, I believe in the Lord. But there was no relationship with the Lord. There was no love for the Lord. He wanted the blessing of God, cried aloud when he didn't get it. But the reality is that Esau had no real place for God in his life. And because of that, he was unholy because of his lack of trust in God. And unholy people cannot repent. Because real change begins with not seeking repentance, but with seeking God and who he is in Jesus Christ. And because Esau kept God at arm's length, even though he said he believed, he couldn't become the, the man who would repent. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, see to it that none of you are in that position. That's first. Second, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Esau was unholy, because he also didn't seek, he missed the grace of God. And the writer, author of Hebrews is writing to believers here. They're Jewish believers in Christ. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and let the root of bitterness grow up in their lives. He's saying, see to you that you don't miss this. God offers his grace to you. In the New Testament, it grace to you through the mercy of the act of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Do you trust that? Because without God's grace, we can't repent. The author is saying here, approach the grace of God, his throne, and truly repent. Or you'll be like Esau and say, I can't change. I can't. That's not Christianity. John Calvin says of this text, whenever a sinner sighs on account of his sin, the Lord is ready to forgive. Did you have a sighing moment this week? I did it again. Praise God. God is willing to extend his grace back to you, and he never stops doing so. It's like a fire hose of grace. He's eager to do so. 
For to him who knocks, it will be opened, says John Calvin. But the ungodly, however they deplore their lot, who complain and howl, do not yet knock on God's door for mercy. For this cannot be done except by pain. It's painful to admit we're wrong before the Lord. It's our pride which keeps us back from doing so. And when we keep God at arm's length and we say, I'll let you be Lord of my life in this part of my life, but not here. It's exactly what I did my whole teenage years. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Those five years I grew, I was growing, but you wouldn't want me to date your daughter. My point is, you grow in the grace, but you have to see the grace for what it is in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And it's by trusting in that gift, we're holy, we're righteous. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Esau missed it. Don't you miss it. You don't want to be like that. Luke says in Acts 5.31, writing about Jesus, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of their sins. God raised Jesus so we'll get repentance. Well, wait, wait, isn't that our responsibility to repent? Yes, it is. But it's God's grace that makes that possible in each and every one of our lives. David says in Psalm 51, which we all prayed in unison on Ash Wednesday, Search me, O God, know my hearts, try me and know me, lead me in the way everlasting. Why does David pray like that? Because David knows he needs God to lead him into repentance, and so do we. Show me my sins, otherwise I won't even see them, Lord. Because it's by God's grace that makes repentance possible. And it's God's grace that will bend and break our rebellious will of doing life our own way and doing it Jesus' way and thus making him Lord. And in so doing, we'll discover real and lasting change. Because we seek Jesus and not religion. Seek Jesus and not the demonstration of repentance. And it comes to the most unlikely people, doesn't it? There was a guy in the, in the 16th century that was like this. He was a successful businessman. He owned his own ship. Had a successful freight trading industry. Had all the women he want. Had all the drink that he want. Highly successful. He was on top of the world. Until. He realized how bankrupt and unsatisfying that life truly is. Had some friends that graduated, they're all economics majors at George Mason University. And you know, I, I got together with them shortly after graduation. They all got these, this job with a consulting firm called Booz Allen and Hamilton. I don't know if the Booz Allen is still around or not. I think it is. Large consulting firm. And these guys were just Esau-like, you know. And they said, yeah, Booz Allen, we eat hard, we drink hard, we sleep hard with as many women as we can hard. Wow. 
I'd love to talk to him now. How's it going for you? How you doing? How are your relationships? John Newton discovered it was totally bankrupt. And he professed his sin before the Lord, truly repented, and took a 180. Because Dr. Packer would say, you know, if you've been in the military, you know what an about face is. Right? Because when the drill instructor says about face, it's not a choice. You do an about face, you turn, and you march forward. And marching forward is in a new direction, isn't it? That's what repentance is. And John Newton got that. And because of his faithfulness of following God, he went to the poorest section of London and radically ministered the gospel to the least and lost within the Anglican church of all places. Because God's amazing grace grabbed him. And with he and William Cooper, they rewrote hymns. And we, it's the favorite hymn of all, Amazing Grace. Because it is amazing. And it was radical when John Newton changed. All his friends go, what are you doing? And it's radical today. It always has been. So now we come, my friends, and we see what repentance isn't. Come back next week, and we'll see how we take the first steps to do so. Because it's a process, and it's a joyful one as we do so. Why? Because this is how much you are loved. You can take this truth with you tomorrow morning as you go back to work. As you go back to school, as you go back to all the activities that we have to go back, you are his beloved son or daughter because of the holiness that you have in Jesus Christ. Not like Esau. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day and grateful that we have been shown good and bad examples of what true repentance truly looks like. Lord, we pray that this would be a transforming five weeks for us this Lenten season. That we would be such a people that would come to you, not to religion. Come to you, not to do liturgy. That we would come to you each and every Sunday, not to church, but to worship you, the living God. And as we do that, Lord, that we would meet you be fed by your word and by your sacrament and empowered, inspired to live for you because you are what matters and you are who we get for eternity. We thank you for that reality. May our lights reveal that truth for years to come. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.